ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello and welcome to The World Today. It's Friday the 16th of February. I'm Rachel Mealy, coming to you from the lands of the Tuabal and Yagara people. Today, Taylor Fever. The countdown is on until the first of the pop megastars concerts tonight at the MCG. We'll bring you all the swifty excitement. And Sydney's mulch scandal. The list of contaminated sites grows with asbestos testing underway at several schools, a hospital and a supermarket. It seems like it's spreading all around Sydney. It's a concern that there is stuff obviously around, but obviously we'd rather the precautionary testing than no testing at all. We were actually just playing over in those pub garden beds on, on Tuesday. Well, it's the day Taylor Swift's Australian fans have been waiting for. Tonight, the pop megastar will perform the first Australian show of her era's tour at the Melbourne Cricket Ground. Over the next three nights, more than a quarter of a million of her fans will see her perform before she moves on to Sydney next weekend. It's already the biggest concert tour in history, but the Melbourne shows are expected to be the superstar's largest concerts ever. Alison Shaw reports. Taylor Swift mania has descended on Melbourne. In just a few short hours, nearly 100,000 die-hard Swifties will be seeing their idol take to the stage. I've waited my whole life for this moment, for this day. Excitement is reaching fever pitch. I am so excited. The fear is that I'll cry. But I've been like, the makeup is too much. I can't ruin it with the crying. I've been a Swifty since I was like 10. Yeah, we've been 15 years ago. We we got tickets in June and they've been prepping ever since. And they've flown in from all over the world. We came from Taiwan and uh, it's like my whole life dream. Uh, I came here to see Taylor Swift from Christchurch, New Zealand. And I came from Darwin. Tonight's concert at the MCG is the first of seven shows in Australia spread across two weekends in Melbourne and Sydney. They'll be her first shows in Australia in over five years. The acting Lord Mayor of Melbourne, Nicholas Rees, says the mood in the city is electric. I don't think Melbourne's seen anything like this in a very, very long time. Probably have to go back to the tour by the Beatles in 1964, Maybe ABBA in 1977 got close, um, but it's just like the whole city is in the grip of Taylor mania. You know, billboards along the road to the airport were um, lit up with Welcome to Melbourne, Taylor. Businesses say they're getting a financial boost from the Taylor Swift effect, especially those in the tourism industry. You can't get a hotel room for love or money in Melbourne at the moment. There's been a big flow of um, interstate and international visitors coming to the city for the concerts. Uh, We estimate for our sort of local shopkeepers will inject uh, $35 million into their local coffers and been some estimates as high as 1.2 billion in terms of the broader economies. But KPMG chief economist Brendan Rin says those lofty figures are hard to believe. I suspect the billion dollars that is being bandied around is really talking about gross expenditure. And at the end of the day, it's how much injected to the economy from a net term that's really most important. And we're only anticipating that is going to be around 
$10 million. Dr Rin says most of the economic benefit is coming from overseas visitors rather than Australians spending big. It's been estimated that about 80% of those ticket sales are going to be from locals from uh, Melbourne and Sydney. So that expenditure um, is just a transfer. If they wouldn't have spent the money on Taylor Swift tickets, they will have spent it on something else. The economic impact of Taylor Swift on the Australian economy may be under debate, but what's not up for question is the level of passion from her Australian fans. Sadly, not every Swifty will get to see the performance, simply because demand is so much higher than supply. Jordan is one of those who missed out on tickets, but this morning she travelled from Geelong to the MCG to queue up for merchandise. We tried for many, many hours to try and get tickets, but didn't end up with anything. And this is like my favourite artist ever, so I'm trying all I can. But for the lucky ones, it will be a night to remember. Alison Shaw reporting there. Contamination concerns continue to grow in Sydney. Testing has begun at seven schools and investigations have now widened to take in more than 20 sites across the city where the tainted garden mulch may have been used. The New South Wales Premier has warned there are potentially hundreds of contaminated sites, but authorities are still unsure how the hazardous material found its way into the mulch. There are growing calls for extra steps to reassure the public while investigations continue. Gavin Coote reports. As they dropped off their children at International Grammar School in central Sydney this morning, these parents were trying to keep their cool as investigators were on site testing for asbestos. Well, I think it's a problem because it seems like it's spreading all around Sydney. Um, so I'm pleased that the school is doing some testing because that will keep our children safe. When you hear about the things that can happen with asbestos and, and sort of the cancer and things like that that it can cause, always worried, but, I mean, until they find something, you, you keep going and you keep, um, yeah, live your life, I guess. It's a concern that there is stuff obviously around, um, but, I mean, obviously we'd rather the precautionary testing than no testing at all. Precautionary testing is underway at several schools after the Environment Protection Authority found they'd received mulch from the same manufacturer that supplied mulch to 25 positive sites. So far, only one school has closed. The EPA says it should know the results within 24 hours. Yvonne Hills from the Federation of Parents and Citizens Association of New South Wales is glad authorities are taking precautions. And I know that the Department of Education are working very closely to make sure that, you know, kids are safe, also our teachers and our principals, which is super important. But, yeah, definitely concerning. I mean, I, I read all the, the information this morning about Allenby in North Sydney, um, and I know that their, their precautionary um, testing is happening, and I believe the EPA is working 24-7, which is great to hear, because obviously this is a serious concern. The number of contaminated sites keeps growing, and a task force has been formed to give more resources and support to the EPA's investigation. The supplier Green Life Resource Recovery Facility has reiterated its mulch is free of asbestos when it leaves its facility and says it's cooperating with the investigation. Premier Chris Minns has warned there could be hundreds of affected sites and the opposition is calling for more measures to allay community concern. Shadow Environment Minister Kelly Sloan. At least there's a register for schools, but we know this is impacting public parks, transport hubs, um, and, and the opposition is calling for a register of all sites 
so that people can see some real-time tracking uh, and the status of those investigations. And they can make a choice about whether they want to go to their local park with their dog or their kids or whether they avoid it until it's had the all clear. Experts are stressing the health risk remains low because it's thought most of the asbestos is in bonded rather than friable form. Andrew Orfanis is a certified occupational hygienist and past president of the Australian Institute of Occupational Hygienists. If there's cement sheeting in mulch, there is no risk of any of being exposed to respirable fibre, asbestos fibres uh, if you're just walking by. It's just sitting there, it's doing nothing. The only risk is when you basically break it up and pulverise it into fine dust, which could then could potentially be blown around uh, and, and inhaled. And in this scenario, that is very, very unlikely. Occupational hygienist Andrew Orfanos ending that report by Gavin Coote. Tasmania's Supreme Court has ordered the Anglican Church to pay millions of dollars in compensation to a man who was sexually abused by a priest. It's a significant decision because the judgment could become a test case for other victim survivors. Advocates say the decision opens the way for others who may have signed agreements decades ago which prevented them from taking further legal action. Loretta Loberger reports. Tasmanian man John Steen has spent decades fighting the Anglican Church. Yesterday, he was finally handed a victory. I feel um, stunned, overwhelmed. It's been such a long journey. Now in his 50s, Mr Steen was assaulted by convicted Tasmanian pedophile Louis Daniels as a child. The whole story is almost all of my life. Um, I was initially assaulted by Daniels at the age of about nine or ten. As a, as a 16 year old, I did my best to try to get Daniels removed uh, from positions where he could assault other children. Uh, that didn't happen. Um, again, I tried in 1994 when I was 23 to get justice. That didn't work very well. Uh, there was a settlement and I was, I was shut down by a, uh, a legal agreement. I was, you know, I was silenced. Mr Steen received $34,000 from Daniels back in the 1990s in an agreement that prevented him taking further legal action. It wasn't until he raised his case in the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse that he was able to tell his story without breaching that agreement. It sparked a decade-long fight for justice. Thanks to the Royal Commission, we had we were armed with more information. The Royal Commission eventually led to law changes in Tasmania that allow victim survivors to challenge unjust agreements like Mr Steen's and have them overturned, something he's now done successfully in Tasmania's Supreme Court. In the first case of its kind, the court has awarded damages of almost $2.4 million, describing the abuse as serious and damaging. It includes exemplary or punitive damages against the Anglican Church. I really don't know what life looks like without this struggle against the diocese. So, um, you know, it's going to take a long time to sink in. Hopefully it's going to make it a lot easier for a lot of people. Steve Fisher is the chief executive of Victim Survivor Advocacy Group Beyond Abuse. This is a very significant decision. It is a win for victim survivors and uh, other institutions and the churches especially. They should be on notice that uh, victim survivors are coming for you now and, and we're not hamstrung by the law. The law is fair now. Mr Fisher believes both victim survivors and institutions like the Anglican Church were watching this case closely. This decision has been made possible by um, a man who has fought 
the church in the courts and um, he should be congratulated. He's a trailblazer and um, this sets things up for, for people to get more realistic payments. He points out the significant sum awarded to Mr Steen by the court is calculated to consider lost earnings. This isn't all about the money. This isn't like winning lotto. For the rest of uh, his life, he's going to suffer the psychological damage and in a lot of cases the physical damage that, that happened to him by the abuse. This is what he would have earned if the abuse had not happened. It's not a gift. Tasmanian Anglican Bishop Richard Condy said the church was pleased to have a result from the court detailing the proper level of compensation, but it was still working through the judgment. It's the largest settlement the Tasmanian Anglican Church has been ordered to pay. We were surprised by the amount of the judgment, but, uh, you know, we're, we're still trying to understand it. We're so sad uh, that uh, people who've uh, sat in my position before me have not been able to uh, follow through in the appropriate way with people who came forward for abuse. Uh, things are very different now. Louis Daniels was last year sentenced to six years in prison for the persistent sexual abuse of boys, including Mr Steen, his third prison term for child sexual abuse crimes. Loretta Loberger and Alexandra Humphreys reporting. And if you have experienced childhood trauma or abuse, you can call the Blue Knot Helpline and Redress Support Service on 1300 657 380. On ABC Radio across Australia, streaming online and on the ABC Listen app, this is The World Today. Thanks for your company. In Gaza, the largest hospital that's still functioning in the besieged territory has been attacked by Israeli troops. Israel is calling it a precise and limited operation, but a surgeon at the NASA hospital in Han Yunus says patients, staff and displaced civilians were forced to flee the raid. Nicole Johnston has the latest. Another hospital in Gaza, raided by Israeli forces. This time, it was NASA Hospital in Han Yunus, in the south. Video of the aftermath of the attack shows people walking through corridors, choked with smoke and dust. Dr Mohammed Harara filmed himself during the raid. Then switching to Arabic, he says... Is there anyone still inside? There's gunfire, there's gunfire, heads down. Heads down, everyone. Guys, get out, get out. Hakim Baraka was volunteering at the hospital when it was attacked. He described what happened. It was a difficult night. The airstrikes were so intense. They hit one of the patients' rooms. Two patients were killed. One of them is still unidentified. There were others injured as well. And the orthopaedic department has been completely destroyed. Khan Yunus has been under attack for weeks. Israeli forces fighting Hamas militants, turning the town into rubble. Israel says it has information that Hamas fighters were holed up in the hospital and had kept hostages or the bodies of captives there. Daniel Hagari is an Israeli military spokesman. Because Hamas terrorists are likely hiding behind injured civilians inside Nasser Hospital right now and appear to have used the hospital to hide our hostages there too. The IDF is conducting a precise and limited operation inside Nasser Hospital. This sensitive operation was prepared with precision and is being conducted by IDF special forces 
who underwent specified training for this mission. Palestinians say they were forced to flee from the hospital, while others fled from the town, joining more than one million people crammed into the city of Rafah with nowhere else to go. Mahmoud Abu Taya is one of them. I had the boy, as I told you. He was deliberately killed when he was with his brother on the road, and we were not able to take him to NASA hospital because the army was blocking the road. On the way, the soldier examined the body and said, your brother is dead, leave him and keep moving. Medical charity Medicine Sans Frontières, or Doctors Without Borders, says its staff had to leave patients behind. Simon Eccleshall is head of programs for MSF in Australia. The hospital was hit with a series of airstrikes and shelling over the last few hours, in the early hours of the morning for us. The MSF staff are currently describing a very chaotic situation. Uh, a number of people have been killed and injured. One of our staff has gone missing and indeed the hospital is now being evacuated by Israeli forces and one of our staff has been detained as it, the hospital was being evacuated. In Rafa, chaos and confusion as well. People don't know what to do. With Israel threatening a ground invasion, should they escape to the north or wait? Journalist Shadi Abu Ahmed has taken his family out of Rafa. He sent me this voice message. Morning, Nicole. There's nothing to do but wait. We are moving from a place to another, uh, back and forth, back and forth. So I'm back to the central area with my kids. And we still don't know. Hopefully they will reach any agreement, any agreement, at least to stop the fire. Palestinian journalist Shadi Abu Ahmed, he was speaking to Nicole Johnston. Two of Australia's biggest insurance companies have posted bumper profits as policyholders struggling with the higher cost of living continue to be smashed by surging premiums. Both IAG and QBE are spinning the profits results by acknowledging the consumer pain but warning that insurers need to remain strong to pay out claims for increasingly frequent weather events and natural disasters. The ABC's senior business correspondent Peter Ryan has been speaking with the IAG. AG boss Nick Hawkins and Peter Ryan joined me earlier. Peter, what's the message to consumers who might be angry about these profits given that insurance premiums are becoming unsustainable for some households? Well, Rachel, first to the actual profits. For QBE, its full-year profit more than doubled to just under $2 billion, writing premiums now worth more than $33 billion over 27 countries. For IAG, a slightly lower profit over the half year of $407 million because of a one-off accounting factor. But importantly, its insurance profit is up significantly to $614 million. Once again, higher premiums. And as you can imagine all of this going down like a lead balloon with struggling households. But when IAG Chief Executive Nick Hawkins spoke to investors this morning, he initially sidestepped the big profit numbers and went straight to the pressures, saying he knows it's tough. But he makes the point that IAG settled $6 billion in the period with 730,000 claims in Australia and New Zealand in the face of high inflation needing to be factored in for claims, rising natural perils and the cost of reinsurance. That's the need for an insurance company to insure itself. Nick Hawkins says insurance companies need to keep making the big profits to handle more disasters and more expensive claims, but he accepts it's a tough story to spin. 
We know it's it's tough for our customers. Um, you know, there's been some real challenges that we've had to face into it as, as an industry: reinsurance, you know, natural perils, inflationary pressure that we've seen across our motor and property. We, you know, that's had to flow through to pricing, unfortunately, and of course that's in, impacted our customers. And we know that they're doing it tough. You have a responsibility to shareholders to keep delivering big profits, but you'd understand this only magnifies the pain for households who are probably wondering how they can keep paying these higher premiums. Yeah, I mean, we've got you know, multiple stakeholders that, that we're managing for, but importantly, customers are at the centre of that. And, you know, what we do is we play this pretty important role in Australia as a shock absorber for those customers. Um, and so, of course, as part of that, we need to make sure that we're financially strong to play that important sort of shock, shock absorber role for our country. Inflation is still very high and insurance is now one of the biggest factors keeping it high. But if inflation does start to slow, does that mean that IAG and other insurers can soon start reducing premiums to provide some sort of relief? Certainly within, say, the motor portfolio, there's been quite a lot of inflationary pressure around labour, parts, things like that. So, so I, I see as that's slowing down and we're seeing some examples of that already. I think properties are slightly different uh, because what we do know is we are expecting, unfortunately, increased frequency and severity of weather events across our country. And, you know, we know the cost of reinsurance, the cost of those perils is only going up and we expect that to occur uh, over the next number of years. IAG Chief Executive Nick Hawkins with the ABC's Peter Ryan. The federal government appears to have ruled out one major option for shaking up aged care funding arrangements. The Prime Minister has said the government isn't considering changes to how the value of a family home is considered in aged care assessments. It's being welcomed by some advocates, but others say there's a need for more ambitious reform. Here's political reporter Tom Lowry. It's been nearly five years since a Four Corners report into aged care helped spark a royal commission. What would happen to a two or three-year-old if they were treated like this? To simply say this won't happen again doesn't give the family any comfort at all. And a fundamental rethink of how Australia's aged care system is run. But while changes have been made, like a pay rise for staff, one of the primary questions remains unanswered. As the population ages and the cost of caring for older Australians climbs, how will it be paid for? Tom Simonson is from the Aged and Community Care Providers Association. The costs keep growing and the number of people who need care keeps going up. We've still got so many providers who are struggling even to pay the bills. Last year, the federal government set up an aged care task force to put together options for new ways to fund the sector. Its report is expected to be released in coming weeks. One key question is how much funding should be coming from the taxpayer and how much from residents themselves. Here's Tom Simonson again on the basic daily fee charged to some residents. We, at the moment, to give you an example, cap at 85% of the, the government pension, the amount anybody, no matter their wealth, can be asked to contribute towards the daily services they receive. So that's the food, the laundry, the cleaning, all of the things that it takes to keep the service going. Even if you had a billion dollars in the bank, you would be asked to pay about $60 a day. 
Aged care funding is complex and plenty of ideas have been floated. Yesterday, the aged care minister, Annika Wells, was asked in Parliament to rule out one, changes to how the family home is assessed in determining aged care fees. Currently, all homes worth around $200,000 or more are treated the same for means testing purposes. The minister didn't immediately rule out changes, but later on in question time, the Prime Minister was much more clear. There is no change to the treatment of the family family home in any of the any of the documents that are before the government. That's welcome news to some. Here's Chris Grice from National Seniors. You've got a number of uh, folk who might have a available home. They might be asset rich, but you know they've got no other assets nor cash. But he says they would welcome changes to consumer contributions, potentially requiring wealthier residents to contribute more towards the care they receive. From the point of view of those that have the capacity to pay, where they do have that capacity, they're not reticent in supporting consumer contributions. What they are reticent about is adequate transparency and or price controls. Jared Hayes from the Health Services Union, which represents aged care staff, says change has to come. If you are able to afford you know, the top of the range, well, good luck to you, but that shouldn't be the taxpayer having to contribute to that. Jared Hayes from the Health Services Union ending that report from Tom Lowry. And that's all from the World Today team. Thanks for your company. I'm Rachel Mealy. Stay safe. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. You've probably been seeing a fair bit of Taylor Swift's name this week. Yes, she's in Melbourne and she was at the Super Bowl. But perhaps more intriguing is her role in the upcoming US election. Today we look at why Trump supporters are so willing to believe conspiracy theories that she's in cahoots with the White House. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listener. app.